Data Skeptic Podcast is a weekly show featuring conversations about skepticism, critical thinking, and data science. So welcome to another episode of the Data Skeptic Podcast. I'm joined this week by Ryan McGuire. How are you, Ryan? Doing very well. So I recently discovered your work that I thought was really cool, and uh, we're going to talk about one particular aspect of that today. But I kind of want to just share a bit of my perspective on it before I ask you your background. You know, I, I learned about this interesting project you did related to the song Tom's Diner. And at first I said, oh, this guy's a musician. He's doing a little bit of dabbling in computer science. But then I saw you're writing Java, Python, and you've even done some Lisp. So clearly, yep. uh, you know, you're also a computer scientist. Right. And I saw you linking to Lily Pond, which is this great project that I love and I wish more people knew about. So you're obviously, in my opinion, both a musician and a computer scientist. But well, how that's do you, very kind of you. Yeah, how do you describe <laughs> yourself to other people? I would say I'm an artist and a technologist, and I, I don't know if I'm, I don't know where the threshold is for being a computer scientist, sure. uh, and you know, probably in some definitions I'm not, but my undergraduate degree is in physics, actually, and then I've sort of picked up the computer science, the computer programming along the way, so I'm, you know, I'm a programmer and a researcher and an artist, and I kind of try and juggle those hats. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about your background and your uh, academic interests. Let's see. I, as, as I said, I guess I started studying physics when I was in college, but I've, I've been a musician my whole life. I, I think it was my sort of senior year of college during my physics degree that I discovered Philip Glass and Steve Reich and sort of 20th century experimental music. And I discovered that composers were still people that existed, which is something I didn't I didn't know. <laughs> and so that sort of precipitated this sea change in my in my life. And I ventured out into the unknown world of music composition. And so I, I went back to school. I moved out to Boston and went to the New England Conservatory and studied music composition there. From there, I was trying to find ways to bridge my interest in math and science and programming with my my music background, I discovered this really amazing master's degree program at Dartmouth College called the Digital Musics Program. And at the time, there was a composer, Larry Polanski, there who was doing a lot of really interesting algorithmic composition work. And then uh, another researcher named Michael Casey, who is just a really brilliant human being doing work at the intersection of music and technology. And so I went up there and I studied with them for two years and got a whole crash course in all the different ways that people are dealing with this intersection between music and technology and a lot of different approaches. From there, I decided that I kind of enjoyed being in academia and that it might be nice to become a professor at some point. And so I started looking for PhD programs and found this one that I'm in right now at the University of Virginia, which is a PhD in composition and computer technologies. It's one of the only interdisciplinary PhD programs in this field that really has strength in both of those areas. And so that's sort of my academic background. And I think I just have a general interest in music and technology and different ways that those two fields are able to interact and the new insights that you can glean from the intersection of those two areas and the new sounds that are possible and all of that good stuff. You have any thoughts on uh, the work of Alan Lomax by chance? Oh, uh, yeah, he's, I mean, uh, I think really, uh, pioneer of using technology and getting getting out there and and recording and I think what he did was a really great service. I, I have a lot of colleagues that probably that are in uh, we have another program here that's critical and comparative studies and they might have some more critical things to say about sure. about some of that but I don't I don't know I, that's not it's a little beyond my 
my research. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should have led with more of an explanation. Uh, Alnomax, I guess, and you might define this better than I would, but a, um, a an archivist in certain ways tried to capture a lot of the early musics, cultural and, and non-Western musics that weren't being captured the sa- at the same rate as technology developed. Would you say that's right. a fair characteristic? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I knew about him because of his connection with Carl Sagan and you know his work on cantometrics, which I've always wanted to do a project on. So I just uh, always curious to hear what people closer to the music side of things think of his work. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that he had a connection with Carl Sagan. That's very, that's really interesting. He basically, you know, the Voyager record. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. On, was, the, on the spacecraft. Yeah. He was one of the main people that helped pick out uh, the, you know, and basically Carl asked him to help to focus on how much diversity they could get on the record. Sure. Because of course Bach belongs on there, but he's like, so does, you know, these Tibetan chanting groups and things right. like that. So uh, we're going to talk about one of your specific creations, but before I got into that, I thought some good background might be to cover a little bit about MP3s. So I think listeners all vaguely know what an MP3 is and that it's a compression, that there's some loss involved that makes the audio file smaller, but I think that's actually where a lot of people's knowledge ends. So I'm wondering right. if you could share some more technical description on what exactly is happening when we go from an unfiltered, uncompressed version to an MP3 version. The human auditory system has some really interesting properties which are exploited by MP3s. And MP3s are one of a whole class of coders known as perceptual audio codecs. Codec is short for coder decoder. Basically, uh, we have this dynamic frequency range from about 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. And so we hear sounds from very, very low sort of elephant sounds all the way up to these piercing dog whistle sounds. And across all of those frequencies, we can hear sounds over a varying field of magnitude. So we can hear very soft sounds and very loud sounds. So it seems like the human hearing system is really powerful and wide ranging, but that's actually not entirely accurate. There's a lot more sound vibration happening beyond uh, what we can hear. Additionally, the hearing system is really adaptive. And so the things that we actually end up hearing and perceiving are really based on what kind of audio environment that we're in. There's this really famous thing called the cocktail party problem, Mm -hmm. which is how uh, when you're in a noisy room and there are a lot of people talking, you know, you're not completely overwhelmed by the din of noise taking place. You're able to focus on one person and you're able to separate out sources, different sound sources in this noisy environment. And that's kind of an amazing feat that our perceptual systems are able to do. There's also limitations to that. So in the presence of white noise, for example, uh, when you're in a noisy environment, weaker sounds get masked. So that's why, you know, when you're walking down the street, talking to somebody and like a truck comes by making all this noise, it's hard to hear them because the frequency content from that noise covers up the sound content that you're trying to hear. There's different characteristics of masking and some of it's due to like your physical ear and some masking characteristics are due to processing that happens in the brain. And so MP3s really take advantage of this whole idea of masking. I'd say the simplest property to exploit is called the absolute threshold of hearing. What that means is that we just we can't hear sounds that are too weak, that are mm-hmm. too quiet. And the absolute threshold of hearing, it, it sort of varies with frequency. You know, curves have been approximated from different experiments that have been run on a bunch of subjects. Another really uh, easily coded and exploited masking property is simultaneous masking. And that's based on critical bands. Critical bands are uh, your hearing. It works sort of like a non-uniform filter bank. Critical bands can be said to approximate the characteristics of those filters. 
It's like you have a bunch of resonant filters in your ear, and when you hear sounds, it makes these different filters ring. And the bands don't really have on and off frequencies, but rather they have a width that's a function of frequency, and so those are called critical bandwidths. Simultaneous masking occurs when there's two sounds, or more sounds, I guess, that are in the same critical bandwidth occurring at the same time. And so when you have two sounds that are in the same, that would occupy the same bandwidth, the quieter sound sort of ends up just vanishing, really. You don't really hear it. And sometimes this effect can also spread to neighboring bands, and I think that gets exploited in some audio coders as well. In perceptual audio coders, the most important masking properties of the ear are they're modeled and combined to produce these masking threshold curves. According to this model, noise that's under the threshold is completely should be completely inaudible to listeners. So you have these curves and a sound is analyzed and compared to these masking threshold curves, sounds that would be underneath the masking threshold uh, you can reduce the number of bits that are used to represent that information or even in some cases like delete it entirely. Ideally, most listeners won't notice that that information has been reduced or deleted at all. I hear a lot of audiophiles kind of complaining about what, what poor quality MP3 is and how distorting it is of uh, the original audio signals. Yet sure. On the flip side of that, I'm probably listening on my phone on a busy street with some, you know, embarrassingly cheap headphones in my ear. So yeah. <laughs> uh, where do you fall in on the, you know, how much of a sin it is to have our, our music stored as an MP3? <laughs> um, well, you know, I'm I'm a sinner. So I I, uh, I listen to MP3s on like an almost daily basis yeah. with my with my cell phone and and my my earbuds as I'm you know, walking to walking to class or walking to work or whatever. It's funny. We oftentimes when we're listening to music, in a way we don't we don't really even we're not really listening. We we sort of just want to be reminded of mm-hmm. a, of a song. Yeah. It's it's you know you listen to a familiar song and you know and you're walking and you're doing other stuff. You're driving and you and you hear the song and and you're hearing parts of it. But more the thing I think that's more happening is that it's just. It's just there reminding you of the song, and then you, it brings all these pleasant associations, and you have this sort of physical memory of the song. And so I think that that happens a lot. And in those situations, MP3s are great, and they're totally fine like to remind you of something and to give you that pleasant experience of like hearing a song again, and even hearing song music for the first time, too. MP3s do a really good job. I mean, that's why so many people listen to them, is is that they're they're pretty darn good. It's sort of an amazing feat of engineering. Yeah. I think maybe the sin would be to not be to not be aware, but I don't know, maybe ignorance is bliss or something. <laughs> Could be. There is a lot, there is a lot of information that's lost when you compress an MP3 file and it is audible if you really sit down and, you know, listen if you were to sit down in in the recording studio with with the a recording the recording engineer that recorded your favorite song and listen to it in the studio on their on the monitors there with you know at full fidelity and then you went out and listened to it on your earbud headphones on the subway you would really i mean the difference would be really considerable yeah between those two experiences and so i think i more i just would feel bad that people don't have that experience as often anymore i think that there was more of a culture of sitting down and listening to records, you know, earlier, like maybe in the 70s, and that that's sort of gone away a little bit. And I guess it's making a bit of a revival, which is promising. But it's unfortunate that a lot of people don't ever end up experiencing like the really amazing recordings that have been 
made. We have these incredible, there's a lot of incredible engineers and uh, artists making really amazing digital music. A lot of people don't get to ex really experience it, which is too bad. One of the really interesting things I learned reading your paper, and I'll link to it in the show notes, was that the MP3 compression is actually biased to European men, or, or men of European descent at least. Could you tell me a little bit about why that is? Yeah, it's sort of an interesting thought that, that that's how it is. The MP3 format, when it was created, it was made by all these European audio engineers in, in Germany and Austria. They tried to be rigorous about how they tested the music, but didn't totally succeed. When the MP3 was being developed, they used a lot of listening tests mm -hmm. to determine whether the format was doing a good job of compressing music and having it still sound good on the other side. You know, as we'll talk about more later, I'm sure, is uh, Tom's Diner was sort of the famous first song encoded as an MP3, and it's known as the mother of the MP3. And that that was just sort of arbitrarily chosen by the engineers. You know, they heard it on the radio one day and thought that it would be an interesting challenge to encode. And, you know, sort of the rest of the music that was used, it's all stuff that was pretty well recorded. There's part of a Haydn trumpet concerto and a Tracy Chapman song. It's all stuff that really um, conforms to, I think, like sort of rigorous Western European and American standards of audio production, but you don't you don't have any you know there's no Alan Lomax recordings, uh, for example, and there's no uh, they didn't test it with you know with noise music or like punk rock mm -hmm. or drumming music from Africa or these different kinds of music, and so it it ends up that MP3s do a really fine job encoding really well-recorded music, really pristinely recorded music, but they don't do such a good job of encoding things that are recorded less well or that maybe have different aesthetic values that, you know, when somebody is trying to make like noise music or something like that, that stuff really gets mangled with mp3 files. And so there's this sort of um, implied aesthetic that comes along, that's sort of this baggage of, of MP3 files that comes along with it, that only only certain kinds of music really fit with that format. And if it doesn't really fit that template, then it's just not gonna sound, it's not gonna sound good. So uh, maybe we could move on and talk about the work you created that highlights some of the differences between the original recording and uh, the compressed version. I've seen your work referred to as the ghost in the MP3, but also as modernist, or maybe it's modernist if I'm reading the caps correctly. Well, first of all, what's the right title, and then can you tell me a little bit about it? The Ghost in the MP3 is the name for just like this whole, the larger project of just this line, this sort of line of questioning and line of research. The specific Tom's Diner track that's made out of the material lost from MP3 compression from the song Tom's Diner. That that one is the one that I've I've been calling it modernist. That's actually it's an anagram of Tom's Diner. So if you oh, rearrange really cool. the letters. Um, and I just thought it was kind of a fun title. Um, yeah, I'm disappointed in myself for not seeing that. That's really cute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah most people didn't notice it. and I, I, So that's that's what's up with the funny capitalization. I tr that's my little like embedded Great Easter egg, yeah. little clue that like there's something funny going on. Yeah, um, so I'm going to play just a snippet of that right here, and then I'll play maybe the full version on the way out. Sounds good. My show gets distributed as an MP3, so now it's 
an MP3 of the complement of a recording of an MP3. How is this going to turn out to my listeners' ears? It should sound pretty good, okay. actually, still. <laughs> All right, well, I'll encourage them to check out uh, ghostinthemp3.com, which I'll link to in the show notes as well. Or is yeah. it The Ghost in the MP3? It's theghostinthemp3.com, and I also bought ghostinthemp3.com, but I just haven't set that up yet to sure. link to the regular one. But it's, yeah, it's The, the Ghost in the MP3. So they can enjoy uh, the full version there as well as the interesting video that complements it. Um, yep, yep, and the, the lossless version is there to, to download too for, for free. So I was describing it as the, the complement or what's left over um, from the compression. Could you give your take on, on exactly the process for creating the, the work? That's a really good description of it, I would say. What I did is took the CD quality audio of Tom's Diner. I analyzed that file, looking at all the frequency information over time. And then I made an MP3 version and analyzed that one as well, uh, using the same kind of analysis to sort of uh, learn what all the frequency content is in the file. And then I, I compared the two files, and you just go bit by bit and compare what frequencies are present at any given moment, and you look for differences. So 400 hertz is really is happening at you know 60 dB at five seconds and five seconds into the file or something. Uh, you look at the MP3 file and say you know how loud is 400 hertz there, and then you just compare. And uh, so I found all the places where the MP3 is different from the original file where it changed and stored that information in like an array and then resynthesized that into audio so that you can then hear what was lost when you compressed it into the mp3 and there's there's actually a couple of different ways that you can get at that information and i i tried a whole bunch of different possible approaches mm -hmm. because for me it's my goal was to then make music out of this it's that was sort of my end goal from the beginning is was to make music and so I, I tried a, a lot of different approaches and varied my parameters for how I was analyzing things and resynthesizing and tried as many different approaches as I could to just generate material once I had all this material I set about trying to recompose make this sort of uh, artful reconstruction of the original Tom Steiner but just only using the material that was thrown out during mp3 compression I think most people are familiar with waveforms, that is the sort of time display and amplitude of sounds, but not everyone mm -hmm. knows the frequency domain. Could you describe sort of what that looks like? And, and I'll encourage people to look at your papers, but uh, as mm -hmm. best we can over an audio podcast, how that's <laughs> different from the more traditional way people are used to seeing sound displayed visually? Yeah, so normally when you look at it like a waveform, what you're seeing is it's a two-dimensional graph and you have on the x-axis you have time and on the y-axis you have amplitude. And, and what that's showing is it's a voltage variation really, but which is the analog of an air pressure variation that's happening in the air. So, you know, when you have a sound wave, there's little displacements happening of pressure above or below the standard atmospheric pressure that's in the room at the time. So you end up with these voltages that are going up and down between one and negative one. You get this sort of waveform outline that you see when you see a waveform. That's like a really direct display of what's the physical phenomenon of what's happening in the room. That's not really very relevant perceptually. What, what our ears do is we our ears take this continuous signal of pressure variations and we sort of compress all that information to use maybe a problematic word, a loaded word. We, we, we compress all that information into hearing frequencies. So if, you know, if there's a waveform that we, we see patterns basically. So if there's a waveform that's moving up and down between one and negative one, 
at some rate, you know, maybe 400 times a second. What we hear perceptually is we just hear a continuous tone at a particular frequency. And we would say, oh, or if it's like 440 hertz, that would be A. So we'd say, oh, that's an A. And it's just a continuous sound. So we don't hear the, we don't hear, really hear the variations in the pressure directly. Our brains abstract it and we hear a tone. We just hear a continuous tone. There's this mathematical uh, technique and there's like a whole bunch of variations on this too, but a really common one is uh, the Fourier transform. What that does is allows you to do this, simulate this process that our ears do in a computer basically, or just you can do it on paper too. It just takes forever. Mm -hmm. And you can analyze uh, a time domain signal that would be these fluctuations that are happening in, in amplitude and time and discover what the frequency content is of that. So if there were, you know, what frequencies are present. And so that you, the end result of that is a different 2D graph that's frequency along the y-axis and time along the x-axis still. So that's called the frequency domain representation of an audio signal. And that's a little closer to what we really hear mm -hmm. as opposed to the time domain representation. So then tell me if my understanding is correct that the way you created Modernist is taking those two spectral frequency images essentially and, and subtracting mm -hmm. one from the other and then creating something with the, the leftovers, if you will. Is that a fair description? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And that's, yeah, so I ended up with like a third frequency time representation that was the difference between the original two. And then I did an inverse Fourier transform to that. And then you end up back with a waveform with, a, with an amplitude time waveform. And then you can you play that out of your speakers. And that's like a voltage variation that gets translated into air pressure fluctuations. And then you, you hear the sound. So yeah. I learned a new piece of vocabulary from reading your paper. It's the term plunder phonics. Oh, cool. If you could give a definition and tell me if you think your work qualifies as a work of plunder phonics. <laughs> well, it's definitely inspired by plunder phonics. Plunder phonics comes from this composer, John Oswald, who wrote this great essay in the 80s called Plunder Phonics or Audio Piracy as a Compositional Prerogative. <laughs> and basically... His idea is to make new music out of taking existing audio recordings and altering them in different ways to make new compositions. And so it's sort of like a form of sound collage. And he got into a lot of trouble for this uh, when he started doing this in the 80s. It's, it's, I guess, it's related to sampling and stuff like that. I would say, yeah, my piece sort of is a form of plunder phonics, although maybe the way my method or my technique is a little bit different than John Oswald's. Could you tell me a little bit about the analysis tools you use, like on a software or, or library level? Um, sure. What did you do to create the work? I did most of my project in Python. I used a few different libraries in Python. There's there's a sound processing library called PYO that some folks up in Montreal have been working on. It's really great. I don't think a lot of people know about it. It's pretty new. But it's nice. The nice thing about working in Python is that you're able to do audio work, audio manipulation, but then you're in like a general purpose programming language. And so you can sort of visualize your data and manipulate the data using like sort of MATLAB type mm -hmm. functions and stuff like that. And so it makes it really easy to sort of handle the data and see what you're really doing. I used PYO and then I, uh, I also used the Bregman toolkit, which is made by Michael Casey at Dartmouth College. That's also a really handy sort of Python library for doing audio analysis uh, and synthesis, 
has a lot of actually different functionality that I, I only used some of. Let's see. And then I also, I also, some of the final track, and this is more on the post-processing side of things and like the compositional end, I use this library called Headspace, which is a Python uh, library that allows you to do head-related transfer functions. And so that's like a, that's like a 3D audio trick. So if you listen really closely to the high fidelity version of the track that I made and you put some headphones on or you sit there with speakers, there's sort of this simulation going on of 3D space that happens with just stereo sound. And so it makes it sound like, you know, the sound sort of moves above you and behind you and around you. So that was sort of a that was just for, I think, more of like sound design compositional purposes mm -hmm. that I ended up using that. There didn't really exist any tools to do this. It, I searched long and hard for an easy way out, <laughs> but there, there was not one. So uh, it ended up being sort of a trial and error process on my part. So you can definitely hear elements of Suzanne Vega and the band in Modernist. It's mm -hmm. recognizable as Tom's Diner. I feel like if I played it for someone didn't tell them what it was and asked them to guess the song, there's a high likelihood they'd get it right. Yeah. Um, and, and part of my point in bringing that up is to say that there are things that are lost that are, are intrinsic to the sound. This isn't things that are inaudible completely or, or white right. noise or pink noise or that's being taken out. This is something that's genuinely being lost from that track. Um, right. So I'm curious, uh, I won't ask you to speak for all musicians, but uh, at least yourself as a musician and, and a composer and a performer, how do you feel knowing that most people will enjoy your work in a format where you've partially lost control of how it's presented to them? Well, I would say that MP3s do, they do a pretty good job of deleting material that in most circumstances or in like ideal listening circumstances, I guess, aren't noticed. So it's, it's that contextual aspect of auditory processing. You know, the sounds that get deleted when you isolate them, it's like, oh man, that's like a really clear part of the sound. But then when you put it back into its original context, it's something that you maybe wouldn't have noticed because it was being masked by something louder that's in the texture, that's in the overall texture. Ideally, the sounds that get thrown out are ones that are like superfluous or something, you know, that are that are just not, they're just, you know, auditory cheesecake or something that is not necessary really to get the impression of this of the song. But you know, it doesn't really work perfectly. And, you know, it's it's an approximation. And there are better formats. And we've learned more about the human auditory processing system since the MP3 was developed. And there are there are more modern formats that can uh, achieve similar levels of compression in more sophisticated ways. And so the MP3 is, it's a really good but still sort of rough tool that does end up cutting out little bits of things that I think would be noticeable, that are noticeable. And people and people do complain about things such as like pre-echo, how MP3s smear, they, they sort of end up smearing like really sharp transient sounds. So like a hi-hat or like a sound, uh, which a lot of vocal sounds and uh, different consonants, those sounds get sort of smeared. And so they're not as crisp and the articulation isn't as clear in an mp3 as it would be in an uncompressed wave file. So I would say, I don't know, I've, I've read interviews with audio engineers, and I think like one sort of dictum that gets passed around among audio engineers is like, if it's recorded well enough, if you just record it like at high enough quality, and if it's like a really immaculate recording, then even with like it being an mp3, it'll still sound good. 
So like the idea is just to like record it as well as as well as you can. And the things that get compressed into MP3s well are really good recordings. So like a great recording is still going to sound pretty good on an MP3. Mm-hmm. But, you know, not everybody has that capability. There's a lot of people that are doing stuff in their home studios now that don't have access to like ideal equipment and pristine preamps and recording spaces and all that. And that stuff does get affected. And so I think it's it's, I think a lot of people get frustrated by it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's sort of a, uh, it's like a necessary evil at the moment, though, <laughs> yeah. because I think it, it also, it has, it's a trade-off right now. It's a compromise at the moment that hopefully we won't have to make for long, but it's, it's like a funny compromise of this era that we're in right now that we need to make because our, our storage space on our cell phones and like mobile computing and bandwidth, 3G, 4G bandwidth, all that stuff, it's clear like everybody wants mobile computing and, and it's just like that. The storage space and bandwidth for that hasn't really caught up with the fidelity that's possible with digital audio. And so hopefully, I hope, you know, that in five or ten years we'll look back at this period and kind of be like, oh man, that was a weird, uh, <laughs> that was a weird phase when we like <laughs> had to compromise our audio quality so much instead of just having like really high fidelity. It's sort of this like, it's this like sideways technological movement that we've made. And instead of, you know, you normally you think of like technological progress as always moving towards like better and better, higher fidelity things. We've sort of moved sideways and I like, you know, MP3s don't sound better than CDs. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting time right now. Absolutely. So I would say that as a whole, the Ghost in the MP3 project really stands on its own as, as art. These are really interesting things to go listen to. Thanks. but in addition to that, do you hope that there's a takeaway or a message that people will get from the uh, project as a whole? Yeah, I think uh, I would hope that people just become curious about digital audio and about sound, the sound that they're listening to, and that it causes you know people to ask questions that hadn't maybe hadn't occurred to them. Uh, because I think it's a really salient way of experiencing something. It's it's interesting. It's really interesting to hear the sounds that get deleted from MP3 compression. That's something that wasn't possible that you know most people had never done before have never heard before and so it's like an it's a new experience and and I think it raises a lot of interesting questions if it just causes people that maybe had never thought about these issues before to become interested in in exploring different audio formats or different you know audio quality and to maybe sit down and listen to some their favorite recording on a CD or something have a have a musical experience and that would be that would be awesome Absolutely. So what's next for you if people wanted to follow your work? There's a Facebook page for the project. People can follow. It's on, it's the Ghost in the MP3. It's on Facebook, and I'll be posting updates there. There's the website, obviously. I think the Facebook page is good, is good if they want to follow updates. There's a SoundCloud. I have a SoundCloud account, too. And uh, right now I'm working on... So there, there was a whole series. There's about like eight or so songs that were used in the original mp3 listening tests uh besides tom's diner uh i mentioned some of them before like fast car by tracy chapman and this hidden trumpet concerto so right now i'm i'm working on reconstructions of those things these sort of so i want to make a whole series of pieces and so that's going to be coming out in the next couple of months uh tracy chapman one is nearing completion and then we'll see where it goes from there So I like to wind up all the shows by asking my guests for two recommendations. The first I call the benevolent recommendation, something you'd like to give a nod to but aren't necessarily affiliated with. 
and then the self-serving recommendation, something you ideally get some direct benefit out of from the exposure here. Let me think here for a second. Okay, benevolent recommendation that I want to recommend is this group called the Happy Valley Band. You can find out about their stuff on uh, indexical.org. It's I-N-D-E-X-I-C-A-L.org. And they're playing, they're playing a series of shows out in California sometime soon. They do this really amazing project where they're, they cover songs from the Great American Songbook, mm-hmm. but through machine listening. So they, they, have, they do like these machine listening transcriptions of songs from the Great American Songbook. And then they attempt to perform with live instruments these like really overly complex and ridiculous machine transcriptions that have been made of the songs. Mm-hmm. It's really entertaining and kind of funny and interesting. So they're they're really great. And uh, so I encourage people to check them out. And I think they have a CD coming out soon. And let's see, self-serving recommendation. Yeah, go to, go to the Facebook page for the All Ghost right. in the MP3, I guess. <laughs> and so if everyone good. likes that page, hopefully it'll pop, pop up on more feeds. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Cool. Well, Ryan, this has been really great. I'm really glad you took the time to do this. I think the listeners are going to really enjoy hearing about your project. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Great speaking with you, and it's really my pleasure. And we're going to go out with uh, Modernist Today so people can enjoy the full work. Um, And thanks again for joining me. Thank you.